Hey there, WellPod listeners. Just a quick note to let you know that this episode features a conversation between myself and Eva Longoria, which means there is definitely going to be laughter, and there is definitely going to be some profanity. But in addition, there are some subjects discussed, which may be troubling to younger listeners. So we recommend you listen to this when kids are not in the room. Okay, enjoy the show. Um... I believe that we're, could you say check, 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 or whatever? Check, 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 Okay, check, yeah. Check, 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 check. Sounding good. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm so excited Ava to Longoria, see you. I have been getting so many emails from you recently, and I just want to read some of them to what? you. What? <laughs> um, so you sent me this email. I still have yet to figure out. 40% off your head-to-toe look. <laughs> But it's all dresses, and I'm like, what? Is, who does she think? Why are I you on am? our mailing list? And then list? there's this like, oh, uh, celebrating mom, thirty percent. Okay, I get that. My mom wears dresses sometimes. See, <laughs> I targeted you. <laughs> that was your doing. Somehow, somehow your address books got crossed. But. Oh my god, I love it that you're keeping up with that though. That makes me happy. I was like, I can't, I can't delete this. Like, oh, she'll know. <laughs> yeah. You can unsubscribe. I give you permission to unsubscribe. <laughs> When you hear the word Malibu, what do you picture? Beaches, right? A Baywatch kind of scene with beautiful, scantily clad people running around smelling like copper tone, tossing around things made out of Nerf? Well, sure, there's that. But the hills of Malibu are quite a different picture. They're rural, sparsely populated, and quite wild in places. And the winters there can be drab, dreary, and surprisingly cold. The Malibu Hills served as the primary location for a film I was shooting in 2014 with Blumhouse Pictures called Visions. Now as an actor, when you decide to do a horror or a thriller, there's one thing you can almost bet on. You're going to be up all night for many nights. It can be a drag and a downright marathon of trying to be creative when your brain simply will not work. Fortunately for me, in this one instance, I was saved by one thing. We had so much fun when we were working together. <laughs> Nights in Malibu, <laughs> Do you, sometimes We had so much fun. I, I mean, can't remember I was... just like... Look, we had a break, you and me and Isla going flopping on that bed oh, and just laughing our cabin. asses off. <laughs> well, Isla, you know, is a comedic actress. So the fact that we were doing a horror movie was a comedy in itself. Like, yeah. I love Isla, too, was going, why so many nights? I'm like, the script takes place at night. Did you not read it? <laughs> it's a horror. It's a horror film that happens in a cabin at night. <laughs> I'm telling you, I wish people Jim knew Parsons. that. Jim Parsons. I wish people... I still email him every now and then. Oh, he's, a hoot. he's I, the best. After he won his, his next Emmy, I sent him an email saying, I think he should just start using them as garden gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> he was great. I'm telling you, I wish I'd have done that horror movie as a comedy. 
We had all the right parts. Me, Isla, Jim, you. I know, it was me and all these comedians. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that laugh. It's better than caffeine, I tell you. Everyone on the set was great. But Eva Longoria, well, let me put it this way. It wasn't an uncommon scene in the makeup trailer for Isla Fisher and I to look at the advanced schedule just to see when Eva was going to be coming back. Eva just made everything fun. Obviously, she's funny, and you might not be surprised to find out that she's an incredible storyteller. But she's also the first person in the room to laugh at herself, which made it safe for me to ask this question right off the bat. The, the one question I'm dying to ask you more than any other yeah. is, what is Senorita Justice? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Let me tell you about this. Hey, you're talking to the guy who did Crossroads, okay? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that had a release, okay? All right. Um, All right. No, I, you know what? I was an actress on Young and the Restless. I was a soap actress, and I was like, I don't want to be on a soap anymore. I want to do other things, but I had no tape. Remember when you needed tape? Um, I needed a demo reel. And so there was this guy who was like, oh, I know a friend of a friend who's shooting a movie in Miami, and uh, you should do it. And I go, is there a script? They're like, nope. (laughs) Well, what do do I play? Uh, It's called Senorita Justice, and uh, you're playing a cop or whatever. And I was like... (laughs) You know what? I really don't care what the movie's about because all I need is scenes, right? So if I'm in a, I don't care if I'm in one scene in the movie. I just need that scene. And so I was like, great, whatever, I'll go. And we do, and it was horrible. I did, I did like three of those movies just because I needed to pull one line out of there so people would see I've actually worked, even though right. I hadn't really worked. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to create the illusion of a body of work. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, oh, now it always comes back to haunt me because all of those tiny, stupid student film or that film, like, this was back in Blockbuster days. So Desperate Housewives premieres, and there were still Blockbusters around a little bit. And I remember going to Blockbuster, and there it was, like, on the front of the rentals of, like, Eva Longoria in. And I was like, motherfuckers. (laughs) Like, now that I was famous, they really, like cashed in on it and I'm sorry for anybody who rented that <laughs> at, uh, do you remember any of your lines no I don't remember anything I don't even know if it was in English or Spanish <laughs> by the way I wasn't even Senorita Justice I was like a minor character <laughs> I wasn't even the lead there was somebody else who was Senorita but during our time working together I also got a chance to know Eva as an individual and to appreciate the incredible mind that most people who've only seen her on screen may have missed Obviously, she's a quick wit. You can hear it. But being smart is one thing, and being savvy is another. And Eva's both. She's also tough and determined. I can actually re- remember when, I, when we were working together, I first started to get a sense of who you were when you told me. I had asked you about your first job as an actress, and uh-huh. then you told me about, like, you were running a headhunting yeah. business from your How dressing you room this? and making more money at the headhunting than yeah. the acting. Than acting. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine, like, taking a left turn in life because you're like, well, maybe the acting thing's not going <laughs> to not gonna pan out. But I always knew it would. Yeah. And yeah. my CEO, the CEO that I worked for at the headhunting company, because I went to get a temp job. And he hired me because he's like, why don't you do this? And I was like, well, what's this? And he's like, 
you know, it's like matchmaking. People, jobs, you match them. And I was like, okay. And I could do it with my eyes closed. I was like, this is so easy. And um, and then he said, do you want to be on base salary or commission? And I was like, well, what's, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what base salary meant. And he goes, well, base salary means you only make this much. But commission means you can make as much as you want. And then I said, okay, I want to be commission. Not knowing commission means you don't make anything unless you work hard. And so I worked really hard and I was making really good money, um, enough to like get out of school debt, get out of credit card debt, pay for my acting classes, have an apartment, get a car. Like, so my CEO's like, honestly, like this acting thing is never going to pay what this is paying. You should stick with this. And I was like, he's like, it's like one in a million people are going to make it. And I was like, yeah, I know I'm the one and they're waiting. Like, I really <laughs> meant that. Like, I'm like, if I don't do it, it's supposed to be me. I'm the one in a million, so I got to go. And he just didn't understand my tunnel vision for acting. Yeah. 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 You, you kind of have to be a little bit deluded to believe that you're going <laughs> to make it. You have to. Or in an in, in, in unreasonable, unreasonable faith in yourself. Yeah. I think. Now. It was different when we started <laughs> It was different. Now I feel like there's way more opportunities for people, oh, yeah. for actors. Like you can be an actor on anything. You can yeah, be go yeah. on your on YouTube. Just go do it yourself. And so in our days, it was like it was a one in a million. But chance. you still got to be a hustler. Yeah. You know, you got to work hard at anything. The, the tools of filmmaking are out there and available for everybody. Mm -hmm. But you just got to do it. Well, also like I I don't like meeting people who go. I'm giving myself a two year time limit to make it, and you're like, well, then it's not your dream. For most people. Eva Longoria became a household name with the 2004 debut of ABC's Desperate Housewives. To describe how successful this show was could constitute a podcast episode in and of itself. Suffice it to say, at the height of the show's popularity, when Eva and the rest of the cast went to do press, their schedule didn't look like the normal TV show rounds at the Critics Association or the one-day press junket. Eva's press tours were global, involving network affiliates on multiple continents, their presence in Hong Kong or Berlin or Sydney or Iceland was the stuff of headlines. Desperate Housewives of Dienstag. Desperate Housewives. Desperate Housewives. But Eva is never one to sit still, nor to be concerned merely with her own success. In the middle of the chaos that is a television show, not to mention the head-spinning experience of sudden fame, Eva took it upon herself to enroll in the Chicano Studies Master's Program at Cal State Northridge. Even at the absolute pinnacle of Desperate Housewives, Eva went the extra distance and produced the 2010 documentary The Harvest, which documented the lives of child agricultural workers living in the United States. Harvest was about child farm workers and how many, you know, the United States has the strictest child labor laws in the world. Like, we won't even take a shirt made in a sweatshop by children in China, right? But yet we allow, because agriculture is one of the only industries excluded from Fair Labor Standards Act, we allow um, children to work um, in, in the fields to pick our food and most of them being... Uh, undocumented and so um, we wanted to follow the plight of four to five um, kids who were smart and 
have potential to be somebody in life and just because they're stuck in the cycle of poverty um, it's hard for them to get out and so that's what that harvest documentary was about and then food chains was about the system in which we all contribute to we all contribute to um, the enslavement of, of some farm workers. There was a slavery lawsuit, you know, in, in late 2000s in Florida. You know, people chained in the fields picking oranges. And you're like, what? That's, you know, we're in, in 2000 what? So um, the fact that this is happening in the backyard of America uh, was one of the, the shocking things I wanted to bring out. Eventually, when Housewives came to an end, having garnered numerous nominations and wins, Eva wasn't interested in just moving on to the next job. To her numerous titles, she added director, in a field that is, to most people, especially for an industry that prides itself on its progressive values, remarkably male-dominated. I remember um, directing something, and, and I'm extremely prepared, and I'm extremely knowledgeable, and then the DP going, huh, God, you're, you're really good at this. <laughs> wow, I mean, like, you're good. And I'm like, Thank you. And he's like, no, I mean, like, you know, most women, you know, kind of have to feel their way, but, you know, you're, you're pretty good. And I was like, I know he's trying to give me a compliment right now, but it's coming out, you know, a little, little sexist. Uh, and I know a lot of women experience it, especially with, um, you know, uh, this, this male-dominated industry. But on the other hand, I've had amazing male mentors. I mean, amazing. Nobody, much less women, they can't, they can't be what they can't see. And so the more... Um, comfortable that people are with seeing women behind the camera, the better, the better it is for all women as a whole. But Eva also had bigger plans. She wanted to parlay her name and her talent into developing material that she herself could take ownership in. And she began this journey by serving as both star and executive producer on the NBC comedy Telenovela. It was a smart move. But remember how I told you how Eva's not just smart but also savvy? She instinctively knew that if she was going to be taken seriously as a producer in this business, she needed to also produce things in which she did not have a dual vested interest as its star. So she stepped back and executive produced the Lifetime series Devious Maids, which turned out almost 50 episodes. Then, in 2014, she decided to produce her second documentary film. That particular documentary was about a very specific group of people, tomato growers, in Florida, um, where Publix, is, which was their, their Ralph's, their, you know, supermarket, uh, wouldn't sign on to this Fair Labor um, Act. Like, we will only accept tomatoes from growers who treat and pay fairly um, workers, and they wouldn't sign on. Because you can't always villainize the farmer. The farmer's actually being squeezed as well, so you have to figure out you know, the end game. You know, wait, what's the underlying factors here and how can we create sustainable and effective change? Publix wouldn't even answer phone calls. I mean, they were not, not, not involved. <laughs> and did it have an effect on Publix? At the time I did the documentary, no. Mm -hmm. They hadn't even come to the table yet. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to create a movement of don't buy tomatoes from Publix. And so um, it did do a lot of good. And, um, you know, they brought a lot of people to the table who did sign on. All the fast food chains, Taco Bell and um, Burger King, all of them. You know, the biggest purchasers of produce are fast food chains and grocery markets. It was, uh, they had a penny more per pound program also where if you pass it on to the consumer, where for a penny more per pound of tomatoes, you can change the life of farm workers. They could live out of poverty. 
a penny more per pound, a penny. So, you know, for them not to even want to participate in that, like, no, 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 we don't want to pass on prices to our consumers. Um, so my big thing was give the consumer the choice. Give it to them. I guarantee you they'll take it. They'll, they'll want to better people's lives. Because humanity at its core is compassionate. Then in 2015, Eva used her experience in documentary filmmaking to unveil Versus, a short film series for ESPN about moments of inspiration in the world of sports. And just one year later, in 2016, her production company, Unbelievable Entertainment, signed a first-look deal with Universal Pictures. But the success she's achieved, while impressive, is not why I consider Eva Longoria to be a friend. It's because Eva's sense of collegiality has less to do with the rather small world of the entertainment industry and more to do with her relationship to the rest of the world. And what impresses me most is that this insidious little idea that plagues most Americans, this, I'm just one person, what can I do, is a completely alien thought to her. To Eva Longoria, we are all neighbors, and we all have a responsibility to each other. Her organization, Eva's Heroes, is a perfect example. Eva's Heroes was based on an after-school program I created for special needs kids because my sister is mentally disabled. So I grew up um, kind of in her world. She's the oldest of us, and so we were born into her world. And, you know, there's a void once special needs kids with Down syndrome or mental disabilities, once they finish high school, there's they don't go to college. They don't, there's nothing really else for them to go, nowhere else for them to go except adult daycare. And so we wanted to create these after-school programs that were stimulating, a place where they could learn and grow and be loved and, and you know, have a purpose. And so that grew into monthly events, which grew into a summer program, which grew into enrichment program. I mean, it's just, we help over 2,000 families in the, in the Texas area for um, uh, kids with disabilities. So we're, it's something I'm really, really proud of and near and dear to my heart because growing up with my sister, um, we always used community programs, whether it was Boys and Girls Club or whether it was Salvation Army. Like there was always something, a picnic, a dance, a karate class that my mom would put us in. And so I always didn't know, like, what's charity? Who are those people? Is that a person? You know, <laughs> what's a organization of, you know, what is the Boys and Girls Club stand? What is that? I just know it's a building, but not knowing, oh, there are people that, want to help you and wanted to help our family that we never met before. So that's kind of my reciprocation of, of that favor. But that's not all Eva does. In fact, in 2009, the same year Eva enrolled in her master's program, she was named Hollywood Reporter's Philanthropist of the Year. And on top of that, Eva is very politically involved. An outspoken Democrat, she co-chaired Barack Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. And in 2014, she co-founded the Latino Victory Project, which works towards increasing Latino participation in the electoral process. The main thing you have to know is to not speak for a community. I don't speak for Latinos. I don't speak for women. I try to talk to them and motivate them and inspire them to speak for themselves. So making sure people participate in a political process as a citizen, voting. Um, it's in, and to try to convince them this is the greatest power, not only that you have, but that our democracy has as a country. This is what sets us apart from everybody else in the world is you have voice, you have a, you have, 
you have a, a, a voice that can be counted and it's going to make a difference. And it may not feel like it makes a difference because you're only one person and you may live in a state that's blue and you're never going to change it if you're red or you live in a red state. So my vote doesn't count. It counts and it counts and it counts and it counts. And we try to just hammer that idea into uh, their heads. But it has, a, yeah, it has everything to do with ideology. Like what, how can I help form your view of the world not for you, for yourself. How, how, do you, how are you going to perceive the world and what kind of life do you want to live? And it's that question right there. What is your view of the world and how do you perceive your place in it? That actually drove Eva to put in all those hours and late nights it took to educate herself and to become what she would consider to be a responsible member of her community. Because a person's worldview isn't formed the first time they walk into a ballot box. It's actually formed a lot earlier than that. My master's thesis was on uh, Latinas in education. So if you look at the fastest growing demographic in the United States, it's Latinos. If you look at the, the fastest growing educational gender in that, it's the females of this community. So how do we, uh, this is the Eva Longoria Foundation, how do we support these women to pursue not only higher education but careers like we don't want people to have jobs we want people to have careers and how do we steer them into the future industries of america which are stem fields science technology engineering math because if you don't have diversity at the table of stem fields how are you going to investigate research breast cancer if um you know five men are at a table deciding where should we put our finances? Testicular cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer. Like, you need that woman at the table to go, hello, I have breast. It's important. <laughs> so we, that's the same thing in regards to Latinas. How, we need to get push more of these women into uh, careers that will help make a difference for our communities. And have you, where have you seen we did, the change? Yeah. Have you seen? Yeah, measurable change. Yeah. So we did a study. Um, What's the common denominator to successful Latinas? And not the, not the barriers, because we know the barriers. Barriers are socioeconomic status. The barriers are lack of education. The barriers are, uh, you know, endless uh, language barriers. There's so many barriers. We know the barriers. We don't need to research that again. But what are people who are successful, what did they do? How do we replicate that? And so we did a study that showed every single successful Latina whether it's in a STEM field or any career, parental engagement was the number one common denominator of successful Latinas. And so we looked into parental engagement programs around um, large Hispanic areas, Los Angeles, Texas, and we found one that had a six-week program for parents. So if you're a parent, you can come to this program for six weeks for free because my foundation pays for it, and you take a course on how to navigate educational systems so how to talk to a teacher what your rights are as a parent how to what's a transcript what are grades what's a curriculum what curriculum is your child on these are questions that a lot of Hispanic families didn't didn't even know they needed to know like they think oh the school's taking care of that so we found that when parents took the six weeks course uh, there was a 90% graduation rate that's the parents that's not even the child that's not the child going to have tutoring or, you know, the that's the parents going to a class to better navigate the system for their child. Now they can become an advocate for their child in the school system. As opposed to what percentage? 50% dropout. Oh, my. Yeah. 
So he goes went for a fifty percent dropout rate to to ninety percent graduation. That's yeah. That's incredible. Incredible. And we do it one family at a time. But the most impressive thing about Eva's political awakening is that she continues to take full responsibility for an ongoing education in the issues that matter to her. For instance, as a conscientious Latina American, she had followed the rising temperature in our debate about the southern border. So, she went. I really wanted to understand deeper what was happening on the border and what does law enforcement think? What is, you know, all points of view from it. And so we did a couple of trips. We did about three trips down there over two years, spending the night on like on the line, on the border with the with the sheriff's border patrol. We visited a juvenile detention center of, of juvenile juvenile kids who are caught crossing the border and what happens to them and you know the good people crossing versus the bad people crossing and the drug trafficking versus the human trafficking the, the, I mean it's a world of um, knowledge that I absorbed from people who are dealing with it on a day-to-day basis and really hearing from experiences and oral histories um, well, what was the most memorable of those stories? the morgue. We went to the morgue on the border of Arizona and it's so full of people who die in the heat of the desert that they have trailers of coolers where they put bodies because there's just too many for the morgue to, to there's no capacity anymore for that, that amount. And then, um, we, they let us go through their belongings that they find. So they find, you know, crucifixes and Mexican money or Guatemalan money and photos of family like they crossed with, uh, a doll, or this or that. The other one was the juvenile um, detention center where there were 11 year olds who crossed from like Guatemala by themselves, crossed over Guatemala through Mexico, over the United States, made it all the way to Tucson. And you go, you're 11. Like, why? And I remember asking one of them, why would you risk your life to go on this journey? And she said, because I've never met my mom. I just want to meet my mom. There's amazing stories of the why people cross. Part of my mission was to try to bring out those stories so people would put a face and humanize the issue of immigration. Being politically minded um, and savvy, when you hear people on the other side of the political discourse say, what do you mean immigrant rights? They're not n- citizens. They, they, they have no rights. Right. How do you sort of bend their perspective? Well, it's human rights. Women's rights are human rights. You know, immigrants are human rights. They have human rights. Um, so it's a matter of respecting the laws that we have in place in this country. Uh, but having uh, an amount of compassion for the why and the how we can help them. It's hard, you know, especially right now, I think it's the political divide is so deep and so extreme. It's now a little harder because I have some amazing, I'm a Democrat, but I have some amazing Republican friends who are sound and smart and, um, and even they're grappling with, you know, I, I don't know where I stand on this. I don't know where I stand on this anymore. Um, the lines are crossed, and there's such a, a partisan loyalty that there's deafening happening kind of on both sides. 
because it's just that's the other side's point of view and I don't want to hear it as opposed to an effort to truly understand and compromise uh, in a bipartisan way. I had met John McCain a long time ago. I actually think I think I was at a, a, a I think I want to say it was a basketball game in Arizona. And he was a lovely man and, and sound and and smart and obviously experienced and and you go where are those guys? It's it's hard to find those those public servants now. By the way, it's hard to find public servants, period. Anybody who serves in civic office, uh, uh, um, public office, is truly, I think it's it's a sacrifice. I mean, if you do it for the right reasons, why do you want to be a politician? You know, most of them, to make a difference. Well, you're like, well, you know, you don't have to be a politician to make a difference. You can be a citizen and make a huge difference. Um, so I think we need a better pipeline of public servants that represent the landscape of America. In 2016, The Economist published an article titled The Political Passion of Eva Longoria. I highly recommend you check it out and we'll supply a link to it on our website. Oh, and by the way, for those of you wondering, that movie that Eva and I did together, Visions, it went straight to DVD. But do you think I care? (laughs) Hell no. I had a damn good time. Thanks to Eva Longoria for taking the time out of her ridiculously busy schedule to sit down with us. As well as our hearty congratulations, she and her husband Pepe are expecting their first child. And in a completely unrelated matter, I just want to say, Anson is a fantastic name for a boy. To find out more about Eva's ongoing philanthropic work, you can visit evalongoriafoundation.org. We'll also provide a link to it on our website, thewellpod.com. That's thewellpod.com. The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Brandon Edgens and myself, Anson Mount. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Extra music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear and by Tapes and Tubes, both under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Licenses. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. My sister is hilarious because she's brutally honest. So when I introduced her to my husband now, uh, when I was dating him, I was like, Lisa, come here. I want you to meet Pepe. I want you to meet my boyfriend. And she goes, oh, another one in front of Pepe. And I was like, we don't say that. Yeah. He's the only one right now. Okay. He doesn't need to know about the rest.